The San Francisco Dance Film Festival presents Dancing Through the Lens, a bi-monthly podcast featuring guests from our dance and filmmaking communities, both near and far. Dancing Through the Lens offers a platform for artists in the dance world to share their interests and insights and discuss how they use film to create work and connect with audiences. I'm Claire Schweitzer. And I'm Coral Martin. This week we spoke with Evie Layden. Not only is Layden the director of Oakland, California-based Motor Dance, she is also a singer-songwriter with the eponymous band The Evie Layden Band. She is also the executive director of the International Body Music Festival. We got to speak to Layden both about her upcoming film, Drum Set, as well as her background, which was steeped in both music and dance. Welcome, Evie Layden. It's such a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? Doing well, as well as can be expected. (laughs) You have so many talents, and I think one of the most kind of prominent artistic identities you have is as a musician. You're a prolific musician, and you're also a choreographer and dancer. And I'm just curious about, you know, your journey as both a musician and a dancer and how those two combined and led you to percussive dance. I actually started with dance. I started as a dancer and that was my first love. And albeit it wasn't a real traditional model or actually it was a more traditional model in that it was really uh, social and community based. My mother was a international folk dance teacher. My mom always danced and my dad always danced, but more in the Appalachian and other social dance traditions. So square dance and swing dance and Cajun dance and social dancing. But pretty early on, um, because when my parents split, I was mostly with my dad and he was really into the Southern Appalachian music. And in going to festivals, there were all these people clogging. And my sister and I both started learning clogging, like from the time I was five. And so starting off with percussive dance and clogging is like the grandmother of tap dance. Everyone's familiar with tap dance, but clogging is actually what happened in the American South. Like the fiddle and the banjo met the uh, influences of white, black, and brown kind of all meshed together in a variety of ways. It's a really difficult history, but of course, like this beautiful music and dance tradition evolved out of it and then grew to, you know, blossom into many branches of music and dance traditions. Um, Ham bone body percussion is a part of Southern Appalachian tradition from the African-American side, um, but it's kind of practiced throughout the area. So my sister and I started dancing together and we started choreographing clogging routines pretty early on. Um, And it was something I always did with my family. And along those lines, uh, you know, was encouraged to start taking banjo lessons when I was eight years old. And so it was always something we did socially, but I was an athlete all through school. Um, Playing music and dancing was really something I did outside of any formal education. And it wasn't until I got to college, I went to Brown University and a few things happened. One was I was really, I was introduced at a fiddle and dance camp in New York. I was introduced to West African music and dance because a banjo player that I knew had done his ethnographic research in Ghana and came back and taught us these rhythms. And they just, this light bulb went off. And, you know, in retrospect, I see many things. One is, you know, just the social communication aspect of within African 
cultures and all traditional cultures really but then also just like the roots of the clogging and banjo playing and the Appalachian music has these deep African roots and especially the banjos from Africa and so when I went off to college I, I was public school enough to to say I'll let you I'll, let, I'll go to your university your Ivy League university if you let me into the very difficult to get into African drumming class freshman year and into this like senior seminar about Africa taught by uh, an incredible Ghanaian man. Um, and then there was a wonderful dance teacher, uh, Michelle Bakulabali, who combined contemporary dance and West African dance in a way that I found just so beautiful and appealing and accessible. So rhythmically, it all really spoke to me. And then physically, just really it was in college that I really expanded my breadth of physicality and choreography. I, I wouldn't just without those two mentors um, in college, just really kind of focused me on that path. Um, and so I feel like my musicianship and my, my dance and choreography, and especially uh, in terms of rhythmic and percussive dance really went hand in hand and developed all at the same time. And, you know, if you take a real traditional and like oral tradition part of approach to culture, that's very common. Things aren't as separated as they are in, in, Western, uh, in Western countries. Thank you. There, I felt like I was going on a journey with you learning <laughs> about that process. And, um, you know, in that vein, I'm curious about um, how it is that you develop uh, percussive dance works and then translate them to your your company members given that hey maybe they haven't had the same um, influences that you've had they may have had a kind of experience of dance training that maybe has more of that traditional western classical separation of the dancer and the musician my partner keith terry is a pioneer in body music and he's really known all over the world and i've always had this split between um, what is like this uh, folk music career where we're always dancing in our show and this whole body music career where we're always singing and playing and dancing. And to me, of course, it's all connected. Something that is interesting is kind of training the dancers in terms of the musicianship of really understanding that the way you clap and the way you percuss and sing has to be balanced that your whole body is this instrument both visually and orally and how to just really being conscious of as you're expressing yourself physically you're also needing to control the sound of what you're doing and then meanwhile with the people who come from it from a more music background they have no problem understanding the arrangement and the sound but as soon as they would change direction, they might get lost and have to learn it all over again. So it's, and everyone has their gaps, like each person in the ensemble has their gaps. And that's why over the years, the ensembles developed in a, in a number of different ways until of course, right in January of 2020, we were ready to have auditions and we kind of called the ensemble to a group of people who were super capable at doing all of those things and it it enters through different portals for people but i feel like also being raised uh in this more traditional way of approaching music and dance i have a lot of grace for under and being a longtime teacher and educator too is for understanding how people incorporate 
like literally embody, you know, music and dance in so many different ways through their, through their eyes, ears, uh, brain, visual understanding, all of that. And like I found the musicians tended to want the choreography to be set. Whereas all the dancers knew that the choreography isn't set until you've performed it six or 12 times and it keeps changing. And I see you nodding. Like most dancers know that it, the process is really different because your medium is people. One of the, the mediums you work in is film. Mm -hmm. And um, over the course of the past several years, you've produced a lot of films. Some of them have been screened at San Francisco Dance Film Festival. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, of course. How do you define your films and what kind of influences do you think really affect you when you're coming to get coming up with a vision? Yeah, I have a very visual uh, sense of like I almost see the music videos as I'm choreographing like and I see it in a few different ways. I want to present something we can do in live performance but then I can also envision these other settings that can kind of really bring other audiences into the meaning of the work um, and into the vibe of the work. And from the beginning of Motor, I think because I toured for a decade with a dance company, a music and dance ensemble of 15 people, and I know how difficult it is. And it, producing a you know a live festival with all these artists and stuff, I know how difficult it is to uh, financially create an, a, a larger ensemble, which is what this group needs to be, to move around and do live performances. And as much as I really love live performance, and I do that a lot on the music side, um, it's much harder to find all those venues in dance and to make it, I've, you know, this is my career. So, and I want to respect my artists too and make sure everyone gets paid. So from the outset, I, you know, 10 years ago, I realized that creating films of the work allows it to sort of achieve its next and a whole other level of meaning, but also accessibility and approachability from, you know, to allow the work to spread as much as it can outside of live performance. And this is also growing up Gen X and realizing I did all these beautiful things when I was young that nobody ever saw because it was before the internet. And so I just felt felt like, okay, well, I want as big of an audience to be able to see the work as can, because I'm really proud of it. But I will say in terms of developing the film, I definitely have ideas of location, and all of that, but have been really fortunate to have some great videographers um, and editors who I feel like took it to the next level because that's their job. You know, their job was to see the meaning and the vibe in the work and to really bring it into the film space. One of the things you'd mentioned um, just now was that you'll often have a vision of the location where you want your film to, to take place. And one of the just really striking things about um, your body of work for motor dance uh, films is that you, you film in all these really wonderful locations locally, you know, Albany Bulb, Mountain View Cemetery, um, one location that looked like it might have been a crypt. <laughs> yeah, mausoleum, uh-huh. Okay, and still you manage to have really crisp, really great audio and um, would love to know how it is that you're able to do, you know, excellent post-production work, but then also kind of, you know, 
control and um, navigate the soundscape in these locations that can be unpredictable and, you know, who knows. Yeah, I mean, I really approach this like how you do music videos. So the first step is to record the piece. And so even recording the piece wasn't necessarily the whole ensemble because I realized you don't need the whole ensemble necessarily. Um, and I would get about half the group into a studio um, that could really just nail the parts. And uh, even sometimes I do a lot of layering myself um, because having everybody, you don't want all this, like you don't want necessarily a lot of flammy sound rhythmically, but you also don't want it to be super tight so that it doesn't sound real. But I will say like as video has developed in the internet age and content moves so quickly, I've noticed that it kind of doesn't matter. You know, like even if you have the most produced sound with a visual, you just want them to go together. It doesn't necessarily have to feel quote realistic. Um, but I will say something that was really interesting that we learned with our first video, Ain't No Grave, was that so we had um, at least it doesn't even have to be the final mix of the sound in order to start shooting the video, but you need it's all done to a click track. So I know that the rhythm is solid um, and all of that. And then we have a speaker out in, uh, you know, on our location and we dance to the track itself. And we might use some environmental sounds, but they probably are not taken from the filming. Um, they might be added later, or I've recorded myself hiking through the woods, like for our last one, drum set. I recorded a bunch of different sounds in the woods uh, that we then integrated into the soundtrack um, that weren't done at any point during the filming. What we learned when we did our first one is that even the speaker has to be as close as possible and as loud as possible because we're doing rhythmic work that even any kind of distance, even like 12 feet of distance, there's a lag in tempo. And so the first videographer, uh, Mark Kaur, who's just incredible, he said it was, it was, he had to really do some editing tricks so that the movement really lined up with the sound. Because even though we were dancing to the track, there was a little bit of delay from distance. And so the next time we did it, we made sure, you know, we kept hiding the speaker like as close to us as possible so that, you know, and you can do some things with editing, but you really want the visual to line up with the sound. And it's a whole other level of specificity that a lot of dance films don't necessarily tackle. I am thinking about this after having been able to uh, recently enjoy drum set, um, which we're going to be screening um, in the fall. You know, when I was watching that film as a Fiona Apple fan since probably age 11, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I really was curious about um that choice in terms of that particular song at this particular time. Oddly enough, I had never really listened to Fiona Apple before uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters came out. And a good friend, Jake Blunt, who's a great fiddle and banjo player, was also really into Fiona Apple. And I was like, okay, cool, I'll listen to it. And I was really struck by the record. Drum set really spoke to me. And this was, you know, six months before our big presidential election. And there's all this crap flying around. And the refrain of drum set is, why do you not want to try? Why did you take it all away? Why do you not want to try? Why do you take it all away? And I'm thinking about, you know, abortion rights and civil rights and just all of the things that were being torn down. And there was so much like 
force and anger in that song that the choreography just poured out of me. And I will say 100% in terms of how the company develops, I definitely bring the music, I bring the movement. I'm open to, you know, choreographic ideas and things like that. But for, for them on the musical side, I tend to do more of the all, all of the arranging and content. So um, the that piece of choreography just completely poured out of me. And then uh, my hand was pushed because one of our members, one of my key members was going to go to New York for four months um, to be with her mother during the pandemic. And because everything was online, she could take her job with her. And so I was just like, all right, let's get this down. Let's make this film and, um, you know, and figured out a way to do it that everybody could be comfortable, which is a lot of solo work. But I didn't want it to be a pandemic video that it looked like everyone in their little boxes, in their little spaces. So it was really important to me. And I think we achieved it by being outside and spaced out and then having these solo things, but sort of overlaid with one another. Um, the way it was edited was, I was really, really pleased with it. I kind of want to just keep going and going, but we are getting close to, um, to, to time. So I just want to leave space for you to share if there, you know, are things coming up you'd like to let us know about or any closing thoughts you'd like to share. Um, I want to give you space for that. It's really hard to know what is coming up because as you, you know, we are, we are one year into the pandemic and I, we are not out of it yet. But in the interim, I will say this earlier this year in, in March when we hit one year and I thought, boy, I don't know what to do with all of this work and all of this energy and this, these, all these beautiful people wanting to do this work. And I was inspired um, to start a TikTok series called Motor Mondays. And I was like, okay, if I can't do the longest work of my career, I can think in 15 to 60 seconds. Like that's, I can create in that amount of time. And so for about four months, every Monday, I put up a new one. And I often shared them to Facebook and Instagram too, not always, but um, just creating these uh, shorter pieces of music with body percussion accompaniment. And as we started to be, as we got vaccinated and started to be able to work together again, still outside, just doing ensemble building, teaching the group uh, these these songs, singing, finding the harmonies, finding these rhythms that sit underneath them, being able to do them all together, and sort of doing mini tiny choreographies. And so I'm excited about those things. And I'm also excited that I have, from doing these Motor Mondays, I have all of these these bits of material that I know I can in the future take into workshops and get large groups of people all clapping and singing and dancing and moving. So I'm getting excited thinking, thinking about it. So thank you for like getting me to think about it because I, I'm not that excited about, you know, the unknown right now. I would love to keep chatting, but <laughs> have to let you go. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the interview and look forward to checking out the rest of the podcast series. Thank you for listening to Dancing Through the Lens. If you enjoy what you are hearing, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show so far and any suggestions you have for the future. Feel free to contact us through the social pages linked in the show notes.
Dancing Through the Lens is a production of San Francisco Dance Film Festival. It is produced and hosted by Claire Schweitzer and Coral Martin. Theme music for Dancing Through the Lens was composed by Daria Novo. You can find San Francisco Dance Film Festival online at sfdancefilmfest.org and on the social media pages linked in the show notes.